0: For those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Laura Dunshee. I've been married for 29 years to my husband, Bryce, and we have three sons and a soon-to-be daughter-in-law. The coming year looks to hold a wedding, a college graduation, and our youngest high school graduation. Sweet times ahead. Will you just bow with me in prayer? Lord, we are grateful for your presence. We're grateful that your presence goes before us, providing grace in every circumstance. Whether that circumstance is a celebration or deep sorrow. Your grace provides comrades to bolster our faith, strangers to meet needs, and opportunities to be overwhelmed by the beauty of your ability to work in and around and through us for our good and for the good of others. You go before us searching out places for us to camp and directing us to those places. Thank you for prompting each of us to be in this place here this morning to study your word. Thank you for the willingness of all the ladies who have poured out blessings to one another and on one another while studying together over these 23 years. May our study produce greater yieldedness to your leading in our lives. May that yieldedness translate into becoming compelling witnesses to your saving grace. In Christ's name, amen. As we delve into Deuteronomy, I find myself and found myself all summer revisiting the reasons for studying any and all of Scripture and thinking about our basic approach to studying the Bible and by approach I don't mean method or procedure or study tactic but how we literally approach the content of Scripture using approach as a verb to come near or nearer to come near or nearer to the contents of the Bible draw closer to inch toward advance toward there's a certain level of curiosity that accompanies an approach we have a goal in mind when you approach someone yet unknown you have the goal of getting to know more about that person so when we draw near or nearer to God's word increasing our awareness and increasing our intimacy with God should be our goal Our primary something, our primary objective is to learn who God is. The Lord your God. The Lord our God. In Leviticus chapters 18 through 22, Moses speaks the exact words of God to the people. And over the course of those five chapters, God says, I am the Lord 27 times. I am Jehovah, the Lord the name of the independent, self-complete being. I am who I am. No one else can say that. That only belongs to Jehovah God. And our proper response is to fall down in fear and awe of the one who possesses all authority. Simply stated, this is who God is, and we come to the Word to find out more about Him. Grasping God's position... And then our position in, in relationship to his position sets the framework for all of life's learning. A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Pursuit of God, the whole course of life is upset by failure to put God where he belongs. We approach the content of the Bible first to learn who God is so that we can put him where he belongs. A second objective for studying God's word is to learn who I am in light of who God is. You can't find out who you are if you don't know who God is. That that limited, that's the world's perspective. Do you want to, you know, find out who you are? You're never going to know if you don't know who God is. You're going to get a very skewed picture of who you are. So we want to study God's word to learn who I am in light of who God is. God is the creator, and I am the creature. I am the creation. Genesis one twenty six. we all know it. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. And Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Isaiah 43:7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, dot, dot, dot. Isaiah 43:21, The people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Ladies, we are created in the likeness and image of God, by the will and power of God, for the praise and glory of God. That is who we are. What more do we need to know? We need to know more about him so that we can praise and glorify him because he's worthy. So while reading and studying about that creator-creature relationship, I noticed something that I may... Okay, I have had to have been dense for all these years. I noticed for the first time that creator, when written, is capitalized and creature is in lowercase. And I realized this because when I was taking notes, I would capitalize creature. I would capitalize creation. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. Creator is capitalized. Creature is lowercase. It's a subtle visual difference, but the nuance is mindset-altering. Do you remember the alphabet charts in your elementary classrooms? You know. They're usually positioned above the chalkboard, or for you younger people, that might have already been a whiteboard by then. But they're up around the room, right? So visualize with them. Each letter is written in uppercase and lowercase, manuscript or cursive, depending how what grade level you are or how old you are. Uh, Because now they don't even do cursive, I guess. But another discussion. So uh, visualize the uppercase C and the lowercase C as they appear. Sitting right next to each other on that little section of the chart. That pretty well describes our relationship with our Creator. We're created in the same image and likeness. But lowercase c can never become or fill the role of uppercase c. And uppercase c is in charge. And lowercase c will always be properly dwarfed by the big C. Our memory verse for next week is Deuteronomy 4:39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven and on the earth beneath; there is no other. We don't exist without our creator. The fact that the Lord your God, the Lord our God is the ultimate source of authority leaves each person with the decision to either acknowledge that authority and submit to it or refuse to acknowledge it and rebel against God's authority. In faith, believers in Christ must approach the content of the Bible to learn how to live life under the authority of their Creator and King. That's why we're studying, to learn more about who God is and how we, as his creatures, can live life under his authority. Watchman Nee was a believer who came to Christ as a 17-year-old in mainland China in in 1920. And his life is interesting. He was later imprisoned for his faith for over 20 years and died in prison, standing firm in his faith. And he said about God's authority, the center of dispute in the whole universe relates to who has the authority. We have to contend with Satan by asserting that authority is with God. We have to set ourselves to submit to God's authority and to uphold God's authority. We must meet God's authority face to face and have a basic realization of it. Sinning against God's authority is sinning against God himself. If, for this reason, if we want to serve God, we must know God's authority. God's greatest demand on man is submission. Think about that. God's greatest demand on man is submission. And he goes on to say, faith is the principle by which we receive life. Submission is the principle by which we conduct our living. Submission, it's a big demand. I thought to myself as I read that, I'm like, well, I don't know, there are other demands. And then as I worked them around, they all came back to whether or not I was submitting to God's authority. It's a pretty high demand demand. It requires acknowledgement, first, of God's authority. It requires faith that that ultimate authority is rightly placed with God. And submission always ends in obedience. On the flip side, there's disbelief that leads to disobedience and rebellion. The flip side of submission is rebellion. Rebellion substitutes our own thoughts and reasoning for God's word. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? Yeah, that substitution will form a barrier to faithful trusting, and it will block your willingness to submit to God's authority. In fact, it made me think, you know, going back to the garden, that initial human act of rebellion, and by the way, Adam and Eve were both present. Eve's thoughts, though, and her reasoning blocked her willingness to submit. She doubted the veracity of God's words, You will die. She doubted them when she heard Satan's words, You will not surely die. She doubted the wisdom of God's parameters and boundaries in her life. She trusted her own evaluation of what was right and what would be good for her, rather than allowing God's words to define right and wrong. This face-off has continued. It wasn't just Eve. That face-off between the authority of God and our desire for autonomy, it continues on a daily basis in my household, in my heart. When we rely on our human thoughts and our own reasoning, doubt can arise. Doubt, ladies, doubt dares your faith to stand. It's a double-dog dare. Doubt dares your faith to stand. And yet, doubt isn't all bad. It gets a bad rap. Some of my deepest periods of personal growth began with doubt. On the other hand, some of my poorest decisions and my biggest deviation from God's truth also began with doubt. What do you do with doubt? Today's passage has doubt written all over it. Warren Wearsby writes, Doubt is a matter of the heart and the emotions. It's what people experience when they waver between fear and faith. I could also add to that that it's what people experience when they waver between independence and faith, when they desire to be the authority in their own life and refuse to live as the lowercase c. Doubt definitely plays a pivotal role in the development of our faith. Here's what doubt can do. It can lead to reminding yourself of God's sufficiency Doubt can lead you to reminding yourself of God's sufficiency. It can remind yourself of your goal to live as the beloved little sea. And those reminders can lead to renewing trust in your Lord, in the Lord your God. This summer, a dear friend of mine sent reminders of God's sufficiency in the form of daily theology-rich hymns intended to direct the footing of my faith Those anthems ministered to my soul and caused me to worship my creator. This is what can happen to doubt when we take the time to be reminded or when we take the time to remind someone who God is. That doubt in their life can turn to a renewed trust, a deeper Faith. So how long has it been since you've reminded someone? Not by blasting them. Not by failing to listen to their mournings and their grievings. But maybe with a gentle hymn that turns them to worship. That's what reminders can do to doubt. You're gone. You have no fear. I don't take your double-dog dare. But doubt also can be given the freedom to feed off of our fear, to feed off of our pride, to feed off of our human thoughts and reasonings, to feed off of our desires. And when we give doubt that freedom to feed off of those things, doubt can lead to rejection of God's truth, to unbelief, to rebellion. So one of my hopes for this study of Deuteronomy is for each of us to become better at identifying doubt, better at responding to doubt with renewed faith, and better at resisting the urge to sin in our doubt. You don't have to sin in your doubt. You can use it to renew your faith. The Deuteronomy, so identifying doubt and responding to doubt with renewed faith and resisting the urge to sin can only be accomplished by approaching God's word with the goal of good, knowing God's authority and resting under it. So now we finally come to our week, this week's passage. That was a big introduction, ladies. Um, so this week's passage has a companion passage, which you also read and studied. And the Deuteronomy passage is a synopsis of past events. It's the abridged version of Numbers 13 and 14. Many times I read scripture and I wish for more details. I want more that they included. And I argue with the Lord about it. I doubt that he thought that what he included was enough. But in this case, we actually have more color commentary in the initial recording. In Numbers 13 and 14. So I'm going to use that to do our study this morning. And along the way, we'll stop to identify some precursors to the Israelites' rebellion against God's authority. And I think we'll have more than one opportunity to see our own reflection in their behavior. So beginning in Numbers 13, 17 through 25. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehab toward Libo hamath They went up through the Negev and, uh, and came to Hebron, where Ahiman and Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshel because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So one leader from each ancestral tribe was selected and sent out on a reconnaissance mission. Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we're to take and the towns we will come to. I love the fact that that's what, in Deuteronomy 1.22, that was their motivation, supposedly, for sending out the reconnaissance, to bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The men are asked to qualify and quantify the land, the people, the towns, the soil, and the presence of trees. Moses asks for descriptors in terms of opposites. I thought that was interesting. He leaves no room for middle ground, he doesn't ask on a scale of 1 to 10, how strong are the people or the cities or the soil, etc.? No, is it fertile or, or poor soil? Are they strong or weak? Are they unwalled or fortified? The spies spend 40 days exploring the land of Canaan. Uh, I really enjoyed looking at the map in our lesson this week and tracing the comprehensive tour of the promised land that they took. But now picture those 12 men returning to the Israelites' camp in the desert of Paran. With the big sampling of fruit. Imagine the salivation of the people. I mean, for just over two years, their diet had consisted of manna, manna, and more manna. Would you like that boiled or baked into a cake tonight? Because that's what they had day after day. I have to take a little interesting side note because you think about the manna, manna, manna. And just two chapters earlier in Numbers, in chapter 11, the people were wailing for meat. And they were reminiscing about the, and I quote, good times in Egypt. Quote, remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost? Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic? Ladies, this practice of romanticizing the past with selective recollection definitely supports a spirit of discontentment. And that discontentment opens the door for doubting God's wisdom in our circumstances. This passage in Numbers, where they're just two years out of Egypt, places the Israelites right on the precipice of entering the promised land. But their doubt leads to refusal to believe, refusal to trust, refusal to obey. Their doubt leads them into full-on rebellion. Israel should and could have entered Canaan 38 years earlier than they did. But in their unbelief, they rebelled against God. So let's return to the passage and see how they come to their decision to disregard God's command and just rebel themselves into a mess. If you've had children, you've watched them do that. Yeah, it it looks different as an adult. We hide it better. But we all rebel ourselves into a mess. And that's what the Israelites do. So as we read the initial report from the 12 spies, uh, look for their refusal to take God at his word because that is a precursor to rebellion. The failure to take God at his word. Numbers Picking up at verse 26. Then they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Their report uses 11 words to describe what they viewed as the positive part and 50 words to describe their obstacles and enemies. Now, their report did nothing but confirm everything God had already revealed to them. God had provided full disclosure regarding the promised land. From the very time he entered the covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 17, I mean Genesis 15, and we reviewed that last in last week's lesson. As as another examples of how he this full disclosure. Let me share Exodus 3:8. God is speaking these words to Moses from the burning bush. So, God says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And in Exodus 3, three seventeen, after Moses expresses his doubts about serving as the chosen mouthpiece of God, God reiterates, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. Not good times. Misery. Into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. The plan for inhabiting the promised land never changed. It had always included removing the unbelieving peoples and replacing them with the followers of the Lord your God. God's authority was to be manifest through victories to be given by the Lord your God. God's disclosure had not only been full, but it was also accompanied by his promise of victory. If anything, this report from the spies should have empowered them to believe the word of the Lord and focus on the promise of victory, but their refusal to take God at his word, to believe him, Still ruled in their hearts. Read on with me in verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. What makes Caleb think and say this? Why doesn't he succumb to the fear of the giants? Caleb sees beyond the potential difficulties ahead. Powerful enemies at every bend who are living in large, fortified cities. And he's fixing his eyes on the trustworthiness of God, the Lord his God. Caleb isn't letting doubt shrink his willingness to have faith and to obey. We should, we can, because the Lord is with us. Caleb reminds himself and redirects any doubt into faithful submission by taking God at his word. The opposite happens in the next few verses, starting at 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The ten doubtful spies circulate a bad report. The foundational elements of their report are fear and discouragement. Those are precursors, ladies, to rebellion. Fear and discouragement. Those are the very emotions that Moses warns against even before the spies are sent out. In Deuteronomy 121, the words are, see the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Before they even go in, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Fear feeds on physical evidence and speculation. Watchman these words resonated with me. He wrote, Whenever men act and judge according to what they can see with their physical eyes, they are taking the way of reason. Those who submit to authority will enter Canaan by faith. The way of the Spirit can never be taken by those who argue and reason. Those who do not submit to authority may think they have clear eyes, but they only see the desolation in the wilderness. Only those who are apparently blind, who probe forward by faith, Ignoring the present desolation can enter into Canaan. The physical evidence was daunting. There was reason for fear and discouragement. But there was also reason to have faith by taking God at his word. So when we fixate on physical evidence, what happens? I mean, their physical evidence was daunting. It was the perfect breeding ground for fear, moving from the known to the unknown, even if the known isn't too great. Aren't we fearful of that sometimes? And reports of certain hardship and conflict, multiple sightings of oversized enemies, and endless scenarios to imagine lead to fear. Sometimes what we see, the physical evidence, or what we think we might see in the future, obscures what we know to be true. This makes me think of a funny scene from Disney's animated Tarzan. The old one, old school one, with Tantor the baby elephant. And he's reticent to follow his mother's leading into what, he, as she goes before him, he doesn't really want to follow her leading into the, what he considers to be murky water. And he asks his mother, Are you sure this water is sanitary? It looks questionable to me. When we see only the surface and the surface looks questionable, how do we respond? Are we willing to follow the Lord's commands as he goes before us? The Israelites saw stepping into the promised land as too risky, too questionable. They saw unsure footing ahead, and they fixated on the surface problems of what they could see. But under the shifting sand and the murky waters, the terra firma firma, was the Lord their God. Our God, the capital C, in Creator, is underneath and all around what is visible to us. Circumstances are not the foundation on which we stand. We stand on the faithful word of God. Instead of reminding themselves of God's words, His promise to give them possession of the land, they let the words of men cause their hearts to spin wildly with fear and discouragement. The land we explore devours those living in it. No proof given. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. I wish I couldn't relate to the Israelites as they depend on their own sight and then presume to know what other people are thinking. But I can. Did they ask any of the descendants of Anak what they thought? I don't think so. There's no proof of that. They were spying on the people, not conversing with them. So sometimes, though, the strange comfort, there's this strange comfort in fear. And it comes from making the fear so real that we can convince ourselves that flight is the only sensible response. Their fearful thoughts were leading them away from faith. Let's go back to the passage in chapter 14, 1 through 4. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to the land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Raised voices, weeping, grumbling, Every sort of fear response is washing over and through the people. The spirit of rebellion has swept through the camp overnight. The woe-is-me mindset has gained traction and the people have banded together against their leaders. Unfortunately, these verses gave me another opportunity to relate to the Israelites based on my shared and fallen humanity with them. Look at their two responses. If only if only there's the strategy of spending some time wallowing in the past and wishing for something that can never happen and reliving it over and over if only and then when you're done with the if only the israelites try out the why and when they don't get the answer that they want or a direct, acceptable response from the Lord, the Israelites decide to go ahead and use their own human reasoning and thoughts and predict potential horrific outcomes from the future. And then they decide to hatch a plan of their own. They successfully pool their fear and reason in their hearts to find their best course of action. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It makes me think of the phrase, it just seemed to make sense at the time. In your own reasoning, it seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah, let's get a leader and go back to those good times. I can smell those leeks cooking now. In his book, Making Sense of Man and Sin, Wayne Grudem writes, all sin is ultimately irrational. There can be no eternal gain with sin. Though people sometimes persuade themselves that they have good reasons for sinning, when examined in the cold light of truth on the last day, it will be seen in every case that sin ultimately just does not make sense. This brings us back to 14 verse 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who would explore the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up, their protection. Is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. What do the leaders do when they hear this new hatched up plan of the Israelites? They take the Lord at their word. They're still taking the Lord at his word. And Moses and Aaron fall down face down as a sign of outward worshipful submission to the Lord. And Caleb and Joshua, they acknowledge the Lord by tearing their clothes and speaking truth to remind the assembled rebels, rebels of their firm position with the Lord going before them. We no longer tear our rent, I like the old King James Version, rent their clothing. We no longer rent our clothing when we're grieved before the Lord. But it's not a bad idea to think about. But what they did that really moved me because I'm not a renter of clothing is that they spoke the truth to the rebels around them. They didn't accuse them. They just spoke the truth that the Lord had said, his very word that could be depended on. The land is exceedingly good. He told us it would be. Big surprise it is. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land. He will give it to us. So do not rebel against the Lord. I'm begging you, do not be afraid of these people. The Lord is with us. We could all remind each other of those very same things. But Deuteronomy 132 <clears throat> records the outcome. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey. So we know the end of the story. The Lord responds to their lack of faith and unwillingness to trust in him with judgment, with justice, <clears throat> with mercy, with wrath, and with gracious faithfulness to his covenant. I liked what you said, Katie, this morning about that. Upon hearing the consequences for their rebellion, the Israelites began to rethink their position, and they decided that in Deuteronomy... I'll go there now, if I can get there fast. There we go. In Deuteronomy 1, 41 through 46... Then you replied, oh, we have sinned against the Lord. We'll go up and fight as the Lord, our God, commanded us. So every one of you put on your weapons and thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command. And in your arrogance, or in the ESV, it says in your presumptuousness, love that word you marched up except when someone's using it to describe me i don't like it as well then but i like to say it about other people Hmm, that's lovely um in your arrogance, in your presumptuousness, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you, and so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. The Israelites perpetuate their denial of God's authority in this part. They acknowledge with their mouths that they have sinned. But they still reject the commands of the Lord. They still refuse to obey. They still presume to make their own plan, basically demanding their creator to endorse it. How backwards. How irrational. How sinful. The irony of their enemies chasing them like a swarm of bees, you know, bees, coming from the land flowing with honey, is priceless to me. I love portions of the literature, the literary aspects of that. But a swarm of bees, it could have been anything beating them down. But the bees were coming from what could have been the blessing of the honey. Priceless. Dr. Warren Wiersbe comments, What the Israelites attempted to accomplish in their own strength is exactly what God would have accomplished for them had they only trusted in him. So in conclusion, what do we learn about God? His word is true. His faithfulness to his word never fails. Whether we like his word or not, he's faithful to it. So the consequences, he was going to be faithful to those as well. And he holds the position of supreme authority over his creation, whether or not his creation acknowledges that authority. So what do we learn about ourselves? We are the beloved creation of our Creator. We struggle to acknowledge God's authority in our, in our lives, and we're vulnerable to the effects of doubt, the effects of fear and discouragement, the effects of peer pressure to focus on what we can see with our limited little see eyesight. God gives us Joshua and Caleb in this passage as examples to emulate. Caleb followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb exercised faith, faith defined by obedience in spite of circumstances and the consequences. I don't think he was probably popular. Caleb wasn't blind to the giants, but he also wasn't blinded by them. Caleb didn't cower in fear when the majority was grumbling against his position. He was willing to infuse the naysayers with God's truth. Caleb was laser-focused on what God said would happen, and he chose to believe God's words in spite of circumstances and the ensuing consequences. Caleb lived his life submitting to God's authority. I'm going to close our time with a quote that asks us to consider how we are handling God's authority in our lives. It's from the book Authority and Submission. Quote, There are two kinds of Christians, one living on the level of reason and the other living on the level of authority. When God has a command, do we consider a little and then submit when there are sufficient reasons and not submit when there are insufficient reasons? For man to reason with God is for him to say that God's work requires our consent. The only thinkable relation between God and man is one of full lordship on his part and complete submission on ours. Lord, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. May we consistently recognize you as our creator and learn to rest under your authority. May our submission to your ways bring glory to your name. May our lives of faithful obedience compel others to seek you. In Christ's name, amen.